Welcome to all of you. Thanks for coming out and joining me for this session entitled The Necessity for Good Theology in Missions. Um, there's a lot of things I like to share on my heart. Uh, my intention today is to encourage you, ultimately, to be someone engaged in the missions enterprise, whether you're a missionary, whether you are a missions organization leader, or you're a pastor or a leader in your local church. Uh, the same necessity to make sure that we have a word-based approach, uh, a biblical foundation to what we do in missions is essential. And what I want to do for you in this session is, is kind of present a model to you. It's not my intention to address every issue in missions today. I'm going to address a number of them as examples. Uh, but I want to give you a model that will help you to think biblically and to put missions practices through a framework that asks the question, are what, we do, what we're doing in missions consistent with what the Word of God would have us to do? If we want to spend our lives in the center of God's will, then it's important that we align all that we do in life and ministry with his word. And uh, you might think that's obvious. And those of you who are here probably think that is obvious to all of us. It's not obvious in the greater world of missions today, actually far from it. The other thing I'd say to you is my intention is not to be a critic of everything that's going on in missions. Um, wonderful, sacrificial, well-intended people are doing their very best to advance God's purposes among the nations today. But uh, I think through this presentation, you'll see where there's a need for us in our generation to see a Reformation movement uh, to bring the Word of God back to a central place of authority and sufficiency in its application to what we do in missions. So that's what we're going to address in this session. And I hope I give you some practical tools that will serve you in the days to come. Uh, by way of introduction, my name is Mark Tatlock. Uh, I have the joy uh, now for almost 30 years of teaching missions at the Master's University and here at the Master's Seminary, which is located on the campus of Grace Community Church. I serve as an elder at the church here. Uh, my area of responsibility is overseeing um, our team of elders that give leadership to our mission organization that sends out graduates of our university and seminary to serve the Lord around the world. So it's my joy to work with um, students first in the classroom and then to help shepherd and be a part of their lives once they go to the field and then resource them. My um, day job, if you will, is to serve as president of the Master's Academy International. And what that is, is an organization that supports uh, the development of uh, pastoral and church leader training ministries around the world. We have 18 schools today that work around the world, uh, primarily, again, to equip pastors and church leaders to have a word-based approach. And, and to have a word-based approach, you need to know how to rightly divide the Word of God. You have to study the Word of God. You have to have the tools to practice a consistent hermeneutics. You need to understand biblical languages and those kinds of things. If you're going to be a pastor who's preaching all the time, or if you're going to be a church leader who's going to give oversight to your worship ministry, your children's ministry, and everything else. See, the reality is God's ordained one eternal institution. It's not a seminary. It's not a mission agency. It's, it's the church. That's it. And so everything that we do needs to advance God's purpose for the church. And in so doing, you want to make sure churches become mature churches. And that begins, first of all, with a pastor who's committed to faithfully teaching God's word. 
And what we mean by faithfully is he's not bringing to the scriptures his own ideas, opinions, but he is studying the scripture to make sure he understands the mind of God as revealed through the author of the text. And then once that's understood in its historic and cultural context, so we have an accurate interpretation of scripture, then you can do the necessary work of making the application first to your own heart and life, but also in practice in your own cultural context. So the word of God is essential and it starts in the pulpit, but it's not enough just to have a sound pulpit. You need to have leaders in your churches that are making sure a biblical philosophy of ministry is being implemented. Otherwise, your, your church is, is schizophrenic. Pastor may be preaching this, but what's happening in the children's ministry is based on some, you know, popular, pragmatic children's approach or curriculum that isn't consistent with the preaching from the pulpit. So it's not enough just to train preachers. You want church leaders uh, who give oversight to those areas of, of ministry to make sure that they have the discernment, just as we're going to talk about today in missions, to approach and to lead those in their ministry to um, make sure the authority and sufficiency of Scripture is guiding them in what they do. That's very evident in your worship ministry. And one of the things, areas I'm most excited about in working in our ministry is how do you develop hymnology or good church music uh, or theologically sound church music in your cultural context? There's the musicality portion where you can use the cultural instruments and tonality and things. That's called ethnomusicology. It's a whole major field that you can study and go into. But what about the lyrics that people are singing? And so for a church to have integrity and become a mature church, it needs to let the authority and sufficiency of Scripture begin in the pulpit, be applied in every area of ministry. Then people mature in the Word. Scriptures tell us, and it was Christ's prayer in John 17, that, that people would be what? Sanctified in the truth. It's the truth that transforms. It's not your strategy. It's not your methodology. It's the truth. And your methodology makes sure, needs to make sure that the truth is centered to what you do, okay? Um, and as you do that, then people mature. And what happens? Well, first, they're transformed. They're, they're a holy people which is necessary if you study the plan of God's redemptive history. If you're going to be a representative of God, you see this in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, you need to also live a holy life or live a life that's consistent with the Lord that you represent and the message that you preach, right? So the church, the sanctification of the church is essential to its mission. And the sanctification of the church has to do with whether or not the truth is known accurately and it's being applied in practice in their own lives, then that church shines as a bright light in its village, its community. Um, and it's not just individuals, but what John says in 1 John chapter 4, no man has seen the Father, right? Matter of fact, he's borrowing language from his gospel in John chapter 1, where he says of Christ, no man has seen the Father, but Christ came, God took on human form and revealed the character of God in practice. So now we see what godly character looks like in the life of Christ and demonstrate it all the way to the cross. A kind of love that is not human love, it's a godlike love to the extent of loving enemies. And that's why the gospel is so powerful, okay? And then as people begin to order their lives in line with that, what John says in 1 John chapter 4, no man has seen the Father, but now you, the church, the way you love and live godly lives with each other, 
there'll be those who come to glorify him as a result of that. So missions in one sense is not just individual evangelism. It's about a mature church modeling God, God's character. That's the power of the church. And then as we go out to proclaim the gospel and the message, our message has integrity because it's backed up by our lives. And so in the end, a mature church is a church that has biblical integrity. Preaching, teaching, philosophy of ministry, lives transformed by the truth, people living the truth, and then proclaiming the truth. We all know, right, when people don't live a life of biblical integrity, the easiest accusation the lost make towards us is they accuse us of hypocrites, right? And they're right in that case, and we just handed them an excuse. So the unity of the church, living holy, sanctified, loving, sacrificial relationships with each other, is what validates the gospel message of the church. And that's why you see all through the New Testament the emphasis on preserving the unity of the body. So, now that was for free. It had nothing to do. That was just kind of get the juices flowing. But our commitment at TMAI is to equip and train pastors and church leaders to see mature churches mature that in time will also become sending churches. Locally, everybody on mission in their vocation, being a light for Christ in their community, but then crossing cultural boundaries near and far uh, and sending church planters out and sending missionaries out and so forth. That's what the church does. A mature church is a sending church. And we live in this wonderful day and age where God is at work among the nations, maturing his church. And we actually see a global missionary force. It's not just us as Americans. We'll do our part, but we should expect that God is going to move among the nations as a result of our labors and see others go out. And in, and in today's world, they'll go places you and I can't go. So these are exciting days. I think they're the best days uh, to be involved in missions work. All right. So our title is The Necessity for Good Theology and Missions. Just maybe a, another couple introductory comments. So I've taught missions all these years. Love, love working with students who have a hunger and appetite to serve the Lord among the nations. And um, I've taught missions, though, not just at a Bible college, but at a Christian liberal arts university. And what that means is students I have in class, they all have a basic foundation of biblical studies, which is great. But they may be healthcare, majoring in, in a field of healthcare or journalism or business or whatever. And so in those classes, they're being helped by their Christian faculty members to develop discernment with regard to, well, what are the issues in our industry that you're going to face as an employee or a leader in that company or organization? And do you have the ability to possess a biblical worldview and then have discernment as to whether or not the ethics and values being lived out in that organization are consistent with Christian values? Now, in today's world, even the Judeo-Christian values typically embedded in many of our professions uh, are quickly eroding. That's no surprise to anybody. So for a believer to have integrity in the workplace, they have to have a biblical worldview and then recognize, oh, I'm in a business that's operating not by biblical ethics about business and, and stewardship and money. It's operating according to this, this, and this. And somehow you are called by God to live in that space 
to live in accord with biblical ethics. That's when your life has integrity, right? So having said that, the students I get to teach, some are going out in tradition, traditional roles as missionaries, church planters, and evangelists, and other things. But some of them are taking their area of major or study and use, utilizing that in missions. And so working with them, we have a framework to think in terms of how do you create discernment to make sure you're thinking biblically in every cultural and vocational context. And that's what I want to convey here. That same idea is how does it apply to the task of missions? Another title I had for this seminar was simply this, Exercising Theological Discernment. It is an absolutely critical skill for today's missions leader. The field of missiology, which I've been teaching in for many years, and I've made the observation that the most dominant influences in missiology today are not biblical influences. The major influences in evangelical missiology are not primarily biblical influences, meaning in theory and practice. They're coming from the fields of sociology, anthropology, and fields that are primarily informed by secular humanism. As we're seeing with the whole woke agenda and everything else in our world today, where do, where's the influence starting? It's in the educational systems. So today, now, after 40 years of this influence, leaders, people who are trained went to the mission field and now are taking on leadership roles in their mission organizations and on their fields, have primarily been taught and influenced in the area of missiology from a field that isn't as biblically sound as it needs to be. And the things you're hearing from guys like Brooks and others, you got to track it back and go, why is that the case? Why are these things happening today? Now, I believe it's happening because there were generations that preceded you who were trained under those influences. And now it's the trickle-down effect that's taking place in evangelical missions. Now, there are some wonderful Bible colleges and schools that are doing a good job. So again, I'm not trying to... Uh, say that that it's not happening today but actually if you look at the textbooks and the resources that even those uh, schools of missions or or missions programs uh, are utilizing you can almost trace the majority and back to the same source and i would say those sources are sources that long ago abandoned a high view of scripture they don't hold to the inerrancy of God's word. They don't hold to the authority of God's word. They don't hold to the sufficiency of God's word. And when they begin then to elevate sociology, human secularism, and, and, and uh, aspects of, of secular anthropology and things to being the dominant philosophy in missions, it leaves you and I in our generation Facing the reality of what I said, we need the critical skill of discernment in the field of missions to ask a simple question. Is what we're doing consistent with the Word of God? Now, are there things to learn from those studies? Absolutely. Matter of fact, I teach uh, cultural anthropology. Just finished that the spring semester. Had a blast. But you know what? The best books I could find written from Christian perspective on cultural anthropology, not one of them included in their books, 
a biblical anthropology. They just jumped right into anthropological studies. Now, some of them were anchored enough in biblical truth that, you know, some was better than the others. And I said, if I'm going to teach cultural anthropology, I'm going to start with biblical anthropology. Let's see what the Bible has to say about man first. Once you get that right, then you can look at all the other literature and cultural studies and things like that and assess this is consistent with what we know to be true about man and how man operates as a as one who's been influenced by sin and all the rest of it, okay? But I, I'm not going to compromise the authority of God's word and, and instead replace it with the authority of secular humanistic thinking. Does that make sense? Now, probably a lot of you have read a lot of those books and articles and things like that. Now, when it comes to some of the practical aspects of doing ethnographic research and field study and, and all those kinds of things and language learning, you know, I love that. That's exciting. And, and we can do that with more confidence when we're anchored in the truth, okay? And that's my argument today. Anchor yourself in the truth. Then you'll have discernment as you look about, yeah, we could do that. That's no problem. That's not violating a biblical conviction or principle because when we adapt that to the local church, that's not a problem, okay? But too many uh, of, of younger students today who are preparing for the mission field are coming even from churches that don't have that strong biblical foundation. And then they go to a school that doesn't have a strong biblical foundation. And then they go to the mission field, well-intended, but have no basis of authority to know what they're supposed to be doing, okay? So um, I think you get the idea of what I want to talk about. But what I want to share with you is, is a model that I trust will be helpful let me begin by um, sharing with you what is my favorite model of just culture as it relates to worldview, okay? So this will be kind of a jumping off point. When I teach culture, I use this model. It looks like a bullseye because what I like about it is it gets to the core issue of belief in the heart of the individual in that cultural context or society, okay? And it asks a question, what do you really believe about epistemology or truth? How do you know what is truth? What do you believe about who God is? Is there a God? Okay, these are the critical issues, what people believe. Because out of what people believe, they form their values. What they think is right and wrong. What they think is just, okay? And, and all those values that are formed out of your belief system. So if you're somebody who has been raised as a student of the Quran, your values are going to be shaped by Muslim ideology, right? We know that. Once the values are formed from their belief system, as people work collectively in a society, they begin to form institutions that are then informed by those values. So their healthcare system, their view of the sanctity of life. What if you grow up in a cultural context where there is well, certainly no teaching that man was created in the image of God. If you don't have that, then what? Life becomes material and expendable. Okay? So that's going to show up in your healthcare system. What kinds of treatments, how people are valued, who they treat, who they let die, all kinds of things, right? It's going to show up in your educational system. It's going to show up in your judicial system, your law enforcement system, your view of justice with regard to your values is going to show up in your economic 
uh, institutions. It's also going to show up in the institution of the family. Okay. And then what you see, and this is the most obvious part of culture, it's what we term observable behavior. It's what you see in the media and the arts and pop culture and things like that, right? So when you listen to a song, for instance, that's playing on the radio, if you're in a certain cultural context, even though a lot of it is borrowed from the West today, but if I'm talking about music that originates from that cultural context, or maybe a movie that has been filmed and created by those in that cultural context, what you're going to hear in the narrative, what you're going to hear in the lyrics is going to be a reflection of their worldview and their values. Okay. Maybe to illustrate that here in an American cultural context in a simple way. So, as I said, historically, we were a nation that held to Judeo-Christian uh, values and principles, including the sanctity of life that was born out of a teaching that man was created in the image of God, right? That would be familiar to all of us. So therefore, the value is you protect life, including life in the womb, right? Our institutions, meaning our educational systems, affirm that, okay? Even when they started talking uh, early on in the 70s about sex education, there was still a respect for human life in the womb, even though it began to change very quickly with Roe v. Wade and so forth. But the general acceptance when you talked about um, teaching healthcare or things like that in the educational system, it had a respect for the sanctity of life. Um, think in terms of our medical fields, you know. I mean, it was a whispered thing about abortion. That was not something that you were proud of or ever that you would admit publicly. Um, and, and so the treatment of abortion, you would never see that affirmed in a film or a, a movie that was produced prior to the 80s, right? So what began to happen, though, was what? And it goes back even further. When we took God out of uh, our core belief system due to evolution in our public school system going back to the 1920s, right? That left a vacuum, right? And once you take the creator out of the picture, you can no longer have somebody created in the image of God. So then our values changed, right? And what was placed was human autonomy, okay? And that's why you got the whole, you know, our bodies, our choice, kind of rhetoric of the feminist movement in, in the 70s. And in time, what you begin to hap see happen in our educational system, our legal systems, like Roe v. Wade in, in the Supreme Court, and you begin to see in the um, healthcare situation is abortion became acceptable and normative. And then you begin to see it actually affirmed, particularly uh, among Hollywood celebrities. I'll never forget uh, seeing a news clip of um it was the golden globes awards a few years ago and it was michelle williams who had won a an award and she stood up and she said she held this award she said if i never had had an abortion i would have never been able to be successful and hold this trophy in my hand and everybody applauded her so now in the pop culture and the popular media it's just become normative that didn't happen overnight. It started in the hearts of people who took God out of the picture. Their values changed. In time, collectively, the more people who believed that and their values changed, the institutions changed, and then we begin to see it normalized in the popular culture. Does that make sense? So what's the issue? 
And, and by the way, I'll say, when we talk about missions, the mistake that we a lot, of, a lot of times have done historically and might be tempted to do today is we want to come in and change the culture from the outside. I'm telling you, you're going to wake up 25 years into your ministry and realize you missed the point. Okay? You can get people to change their custom of dress. You can get people to change a lot of things. But if you don't change their belief... And so when I teach missions and I go through this model, the first thing I want students to understand is how do I communicate the gospel to people from another worldview? Because until their view of God, man, sin, salvation changes, and they submit to the teaching of God's word, nothing else is going to change, ultimately. So you can do a lot of things. And, and, and I've spent a lot of time in my own ministry focusing on things like mercy ministry. But my goal isn't to end world hunger. I'm not disillusioned to think that that's what I'm going to accomplish in my lifetime. But I can feed people and tell them about the love of Christ while I show that to them. But what I want to win is their heart. Because that's where Christ said the kingdom is. It's in their hearts. He will bring his kingdom, okay? And we will rule and reign one day with him. But right now... His kingdom needs to be accomplished in the hearts of men and women, and that begins at the core. Now, this is why what happens in the church and in the Great Commission is when they, when converts are made and then they're baptized. By the way, why is baptism in the Great Commission? People see baptism simply as a step of obedience. That's how we talk about it. And that's unfortunate because it's a very limited perspective on baptism. We treat it like a legalistic step that we have to do, okay? That's not what it is. It is the total picture and the public profession of the full transformation that you died to yourself, including all your beliefs, your worldview, everything else. And now you've been raised in newness of life with Christ as your Lord. That means you have to bring everything under the Lordship of Christ. And when you do that, everything that is not biblical or in line with the character of God has to change, okay? Um, and it's the public profession to the church to say, and I'm making myself accountable to you in this body, not only to love and serve you, but to be held accountable to live a holy and sanctified life. And I'm giving you the right when I come out of the waters of baptism to be part of my sanctification process. Now, Galatians 6.1, if you see a brother, you know, in sin, go in a spirit of gentleness, right? We know how to practice the one another's and pursue confrontation with the goal of restoration. That's always the aim. But baptism is significant in the Great Commission. And it's the work of the church. It's not just a step of obedience and just go do it anywhere in a river. You do it before the church because you're saying, now I'm a member of the church. So baptism is what brings a person into the context of the local church. And then the ministry of the local church and the people in the church, both formal and informal, is what? To teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded them. When we look at missions simply as evangelism or making converts, we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. And that's one of the reasons there's so much that's in disarray. And, and part of what's behind that is you've got people going to missions who aren't churchmen and churchwomen. They don't have any loyalty to the local church. They don't have any accountability to the local church. And so what's happening in the evangelical church here, where it's just a very, you know, easy believism, you know, an emergent church kind of deal, come sit in the church, 
We don't want to be threatening, no big commitments, no accountability. And then we just send people out like crazy on short-term missions trips and send them around the world. And they're not churchmen or churchwomen. They never learn the church. And they go start their entrepreneurial this and this and this. And I'm all for that and creativity. And I love dreaming and vision, you know, and, and starting new programs. But unanchored from the local church, you're unanchored from the Great Commission. And I'm going to argue you're unanchored from the will of God. So let's go back to fundamentals, right? Let's go back to the basics. We don't have to go far from Matthew chapter 28 uh, to begin to do some things that are corrected. But what I wanted to show you in this worldview model is not to belabor the point about culture, um, but it's what you believe, okay, and your ability then to have how you believe inform what you do. And that's what we have to win the battle on in missions today. So one way borrow some language from uh, the field of missiology, is you might think in terms of cultural adaptation versus cultural accommodation. Cultural adaptation versus cultural accommodation. There's all kinds of definitions of these terms, and I'm not even trying to use them in a strict sense. I want to convey a concept to you. Think in terms of cultural adaptation. Adaptation, I believe if done right, maintains the authority and sufficiency of Scripture that applies biblical principles to the culture. Okay? Cultural accommodation is accommodation that maintains the authority of the culture applying sociological principles back to the scriptures. We read the culture as the authority back into the scriptures. Or we might even not even go that far, but we read them back into our view of the church or approach to ministry. Okay? What's my point here? Which is the authority? Scriptures or culture? You better settle that in your heart today. Okay. Now, that's not saying that the scriptures aren't applicable or even relevant or transnational or transcultural. They are. Okay. The issue is authority, and that's the point I want to make. I borrowed this um, quote from David Noble, who founded Summit Ministries, if you're familiar with that, that takes high school students headed into public universities and gives them an intensive boot camp in biblical worldview so that they can go into those environments, those other cultures, if you will, and succeed to have discernment, to be exposed to all the craziness in their science classes and their sociology classes and their business classes and, and put it through a grid to assess what's consistent, with biblical thinking and what's not, okay? So Noble takes the text from Colossians and restates it this way and saying, see to it that no one, an educator, a politician, a musician, or a news anchor, takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, such as naturalism, materialism, existentialism, hedonism, pragmatism. According to the tradition of men like Marx, Darwin, Nietzsche, Wellhausen, Freud, Dewey, Foucault, according to the elementary principles of the world, such as socialism, naturalistic evolution, higher criticism, humanism, moral relativism, rather than what? According to Christ. What's Noble saying to his students? He's saying, listen, you're about to enter into an arena where you're going to be assaulted. The preaching that's going to come to you from the podiums of the classroom in the public universities, they're going to be preaching the philosophies and empty deception of men, okay? 
and I want you to have discernment so that you can stand strong. And not just not be carried away by them, but have confidence that God's word is sufficient and speaks to the issues of life. You don't need to be apologetic. You have the word of God, enabled by the spirit of God. And too often we're, we're intimidated by these, these influences and we don't feel like we know how to stand up. Half of you are saying, I'm not even sure I could, you know, spell, you know, existentialism, let alone like confront it. You know what? The word of God confronts it consistently. You need to know God's word. And I would argue if you're going into a particular cultural context, yes, study the primary philosophy enough so that when you talk to those people, you make sure you're communicating in a way when you say God, you know what they think when you say God. So I, I teach, study the culture, study their philosophy, okay? Because you're gonna be more effective in your gospel ministry if you know how the receptive audience is hearing what you're saying and where they're misunderstanding it, okay? So I'm not saying just know the Bible and don't worry about the rest of it. I'm saying know the Bible, okay? And then have discernment and even be effective in your communication of the message. So again, these philosophies have begun to influence some of our missions practices today. So I ask this question, what informs our approach to each of these mission practices? Church planting today. I think you've all heard Chad talk about the DMM movement and, and the debate years ago that he did. I, I got to be present when he did that with the president uh, of, of Missio Nexus and, and what was happening. What's he getting at? There's a practice that isn't consistent with the principles in Scripture that needs to be confronted and exposed. Because it sounds great. It sounds great. You know, who doesn't want to claim I planted 10,000 churches in my lifetime? Um, Bible translation. This is an area of major concern. You get this wrong, the whole foundation of the church is going to be compromised for generations. Or your approach to mercy ministry or social ministry, or your thinking about unreached or unevangelized people groups and your strategy uh, to penetrate them and, and, and to reach them. So you have to ask this question, what informs our approach to each of these mission practices? Well, there are possible answers. I've alluded to some already. In the field of missiology, you need to understand those primary ideas that you're carrying with you about church planting or uh, any other area of ministry is what I was taught more informed by secular sociology or anthropology, or is it more informed by our American cultural pragmatism or entrepreneurial way of thinking and defining success. For Americans, here's how we define success. Bigger is better, always. More sales, right? More money, bigger is always better. I don't think you can defend that biblically. God's definition of success is what? Faithfulness in life and truth. So here's, once you move off that idea and you embrace the cultural, our cultural idea of success, guess what happens? You've just launched your whole ministry organization. You've led, every, led everybody under you to find the most efficient and practical way to accomplish your goal. Now, 
I would love to see 10,000 churches planted in my lifetime. Okay, but not at the expense of the truth or God's plan for the church. So do not exchange, okay, your values and your goals and missions for our own cultural values and goals. Okay? That's not to say that we shouldn't be prayerful and living lives of great commitment and devotion and sacrifice to do everything we can in our generation to see Bibles translated among every language group and churches planted among every unreached people group. But I'm just trying to show you how subtle it is to click into a way of thinking and a pragmatism that might tempt you to abandon some core convictions in how you go about doing that. Maybe there's some areas of theology. I'll tell you a quick story. I was speaking at a missions conference up in Alaska, and um, a lot of the folks there were, were ministering among um, Native Alaskan populations and villages. That's tough work. If you understand the, you know, the problems that uh, exist in those communities with alcoholism and teen pregnancy and, and, and uh, everything else. And um, this brother came up to me at the, the break, and he just said, I'm just so discouraged as a missionary. I said, well, why are you discouraged? And he says, well, every month I have to send this report into my mission board that tells how many people I evangelized, how many people came to my church, how many people I baptized. And, and it was in that moment as I listened to him, I said, here's a discouraged brother who's, who's sacrificing his life. He's being faithful. He loves Christ. Why are we doing this to him? That he feels like a failure for being faithful. Okay? Now, if he wasn't being faithful, Right? He has a drop-in ministry, and he checks the box, and he's sitting home watching Netflix the whole time. And that's a different issue. But that wasn't this guy. Okay? He was devoted to reaching these people for Christ. And I, and I thought, you know, really, it's a theological issue that undergirds that practice. Because if you actually believe the missionary is the one responsible for saving people, then you can hold them accountable to it. Now, I might be okay with asking how many people to you contact to share Christ with, or even how many tracts you mailed out. I can handle that. But when you're talking about the number of baptisms and converts and things like that, and a lot of missionaries are under this kind of pressure or expectation that when they write their newsletters, if not reports to their mission organizations, and you have to ask the question, where's that coming from? It's a theological issue. Somewhere along the way, somebody believes in leadership that the missionary actually is capable of saving people. And I put on here that's more of an Arminian mentality that dominates a lot of missions practice today, believe it or not. And a lot of the pragmatism and things that, that flow out of it have to do with this issue. When you get into mercy ministry in these other areas, your definition of the kingdom is huge. And this is one of the most confused issues today uh, among uh, younger people going into areas of uh, ministry among uh, impoverished uh, communities in developing countries. How you define the kingdom is important. And the kingdom is being redefined again, just like it was in the 1900s during the social gospel movement, where the kingdom was defined as to what can happen in a social sense um, to prepare the way for Christ's return. That's called post-millennialism. And there's a lot of young people going out today, again with good intentions, but somehow think if I just, if I, I 
address the issue of poverty in this way, then I'm going to somehow bring the kingdom. And, and they use terminology like redeeming society. They actually begin to use salvific language to talk about their practice. And the problem is, as we go out and do those things, even with the best intentions, what has been lost and what you hear emphasized with, uh, at Radius, and I'm grateful for, is the gospel is a, is a ministry of proclamation. You can feed all the hungry people in the world and show the love of Christ, and that's wonderful. But unless you tell them about Christ, they're still damned to hell. So what did you accomplish in 25 years of ministry? Feeding people and hoping somebody would just ask you about Jesus. But that's normative today. Because we're redefining our theological foundation and approach to missions. Or sometimes it's just we're indebted or, or even trapped among certain denominationalism uh, thinking and expectations that need to be put up against the word of God and considered. All right. All that being said, the biblical idea that we see is truth, and a fancy word for that is orthodoxy, but truth leads to wisdom, right? You understand the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You can have knowledge, but it's not until it's put into practice that it's actually wisdom. So truth, orthodoxy, leads to wisdom or orthopraxy. Okay, that's the idea. Truth leads to wisdom. If you don't have the truth, you have heresy. It's called heterodoxy, and it leads to foolishness. And what foolishness is biblically? Well, at first it begins with the rejection of God, but living in a way that is hostile towards or inconsistent with God's character and his values. So heterodoxy leads to heteropraxy. So what do we have to be concerned about? Is our methodology and our thinking and missions driven by truth or heresy? I know it's a harsh word. Truth or non-truth. Truth or less than full truth. However you want to see it or what version of it. But the point is, if you don't think biblically, it's going to lead to problems downstream in your practice. That's all I'm trying to get at. Okay? So I gave you a handout, and I gave it to you because we won't have time to go through it. But there are at least ten concerns that I see in evangelical missions today that are being informed more by heterodoxy than orthodoxy. Maybe use the example from the area I minister in, uh, international theological education, training pastors and church leaders. Do you know there's seminaries all around the world that were started by faithful missionaries, conservative, Bible-believing missionaries 50, 60, 70 years ago? I know, I've been to them. I've talked to leaders. But you know what happened is in a commitment to indigenization, which we're committed to, and I think that's a, a strength in today's modern missions movement. But many of those national leaders that were discipled by faithful Bible-believing missionaries generations ago were sent to study at North American or Western seminaries that were very uh, generous in offering international scholarships to uh, in, the, in the 1980s. And so what happened is the cream of the crop that missionaries were going to pass their baton to of their lifelong work and ministry were sent back here to study at their alma maters, but those missionaries had been gone for 40 years, and they didn't know what had happened internally at their schools. They sent their best and brightest back only to be exposed to things like higher criticism, 
a challenge to the view of inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. So when they came back, and those missionaries in good faith passed the baton when they retired, they gave it to people who the door had been cracked open in their thinking to allow something in addition to the Bible begin to shape their thinking about life and ministry, okay? 20, 30 years into that, the trickle-down effect of that, the cumulative effect of that, and you begin to look at all the thesis and dissertations that were written by students in those schools, um, and you begin to understand and see where this influence came. So now it's not just from the West, it's embedded around the world through the actual schools that train pastors and, and leaders. Now, there are many who are fighting to be faithful, and it's our joy to, to uh, work with many of them. And, and so please don't take what I say as an overgeneralization to everything in missions. Um, but I would say it's becoming a majority reality, and I can say that with confidence and sadness. Anyways, contextualization has its place. Uh, and I'd love to talk more to you about that. But here, it's, it's what I would be concerned about, uh, what I term hyper-contextualization, uh, where the culture becomes the authority uh, in almost every case. And that affects things like Bible translation. And that's why you see things like the insider movement and their approach to Bible translation. They don't have any problem using uh, the same terms that we use in the, uh, the Bible uh, or in the Quran in their Bible translations. Um, well, downstream, that's that's problematic. If that person never was discipled to understand the difference between Allah and the God of the Bible. And what you just gave them now is you empowered them to believe heresy. That's what you gave the church. Thank you very much, Western missionary. And we will be accountable. We will be accountable. Vernacular theologies. I believe nationals should be writing resources for the church and theologies and things like that. But what's happened, particularly as a result of the um, post-colonial movement, is it's more important to have a national voice than a voice of truth, whether they're a Western missionary or a national. And so what's being promoted in a lot of places are people who, again, were trained by liberal schools and seminaries. Because they're a national, now they have a, an authoritative voice in their own culture. And... Um, we're working really hard to try to get guys who are biblically trained to begin to write and publish in their own cultural context. False gospels, you guys know this. There's there's the historic major cults and false religions in the world. I just give you a few examples there. Um, but then you have the more contemporary versions of that. I listed a few like the prosperity gospel and so forth. But now what's happening is you got these syncretistic marrying of these things. Um, and so you might have Catholicism and the charismatic, or you might have Catholicism and uh, some kind of uh, animistic thinking or liberation theology, um, or you've got other variations on the theme. And so, you know, the, the tr historic missionary used to board a plane and get off and expect, I'm going to be confronting Catholicism in its purest form. That's not true today. And because of global access to the internet and things like that, and particularly the younger generation, they're more exposed to all kinds of philosophies and teaching. And so um, they're actually marrying in more secular humanism into their traditional belief systems. So it's an interesting world. Here's the good news. Okay? The truth cuts through all that. Okay? So don't be anxious about it. You've got the sword of the Spirit. 
okay? And, and you do want to understand the receptive mindset of the people you're speaking to. Anyways, you can read through that list. I don't want to take any more time addressing it. I mentioned the social justice issue in the kingdom, but I think you have the idea, right? Is, oh, wait a second. These critical, important works and, and, and efforts in the gospel, we, can't, we can no longer afford to just coast into missions today. We can't be on autopilot, assuming we're all on the same page about the authority of Scripture. So we come back to this. The model, I would say, similar to that model of culture, is theology has to be the core. And if your theology is sound, then your philosophy of missions or ministry is going to be sound, should be sound. And once your philosophy is thought through, let's take Bible translation, for instance. And this is where pastors, you in the room, I'm going to make an appeal to you. And I'm going to do it at the end in a minute, too. You, we have got to help local churches through the leadership of our pastors create more literacy in our congregations about the issues and missions so that the people we send out, we are better stewards of their lives. So if somebody in your church wants to go into Bible translation, study up enough on what's happening in Bible translation to help them ask good questions before they commit their life to a mission agency that has embraced a philosophy you would not agree with. And then they're going to show up, join some team, and guess what? In two to three years, there's going to be conflict, and they're going to show back up at your door. And you spent $200,000 sending them out. They will feel like they failed. And why? Because we didn't do our job. So it's not just on the back of the missionaries. It's on the back of church leaders. If you've got somebody who's going into church planting, help them think through. What's a biblical view of church planting? Philosophy, and then the methodology that flows from it. Now, I already out of time, but what these slides simply real, uh, illustrate is what I was saying, a model. So if on your right side are common missionary methods or practices, you can see them there, the question is, what are the theological issues that need to be taken into consideration? Okay, so in proclaiming the gospel, are you even preaching the true gospel? Okay, and are you preaching it with an expectation of uh, the theology of, of uh, theology of sin, okay? But if the people who are preaching it don't actually understand the, the doctrine of sin, you don't even know what you're confronting. And you're going to begin to make compromises in your presentation of the gospel. That's why you have to preach the law. You don't meet God's holy standard. Stop apologizing for that. That's necessary in the gospel, Okay. Soteriology, what is the process of bringing somebody to true faith so that we don't just scatter seed and some get choked out or this or that because we didn't do our job right? Preach the true full gospel and what it entails to bring somebody to repentance in Christ or to see them truly repent. And then their role in the church. You get the idea, right? We can go through the list. By the way, I'm happy to email any of these slides to you, so don't worry about trying to get it all. Um, this slide simply illustrates it, talking about evangelistic methods. Um, if you don't have the right view of man, you're not going to present the gospel in a way that they need to hear it. And so, therefore, you're going to be tempted to preach a simplistic gospel. And if you've embraced the pragmatism that says, I just have to make as many converts, so I want to make it as easy as possible. Jesus loves you, doesn't want you to go to hell. Those two things are true, but that's not the full gospel. Christ prays in John 17. Okay. 
I came so that you might have eternal life. What you're saved, it's not what you're saved from primarily, it's what you're saved to. And that is an eternal relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what he says at the end of his prayer in John 17. This is why I'm going to the cross, that they may be one in me as I am one in you. And we get to enjoy that for all eternity. If you just want somebody to escape hell, who's going to say no to that? What you want to find out is the Spirit of God is work in their life in such a way that they want to devote their life to know and love and delight in God for all eternity, the true God, the God of Scripture, okay? That's what we've been saved for. All right, you get the idea. I start preaching sometimes, I'm sorry. Anyways, I'm going to go ahead because um, I give you just repeating the example, but what I want to say to you is there's a, a need today for church and missions leaders to be biblically discerning regarding contemporary mission practices, reestablishing missions integrity, which I define as a biblical orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Okay. My concern today is there's some, even like yourself, who have a biblical orthodoxy. You believe the truth. But you find yourself serving in a context where the practice that's being affirmed or you're being asked to participate in on a team or whatever else is not consistent with what you actually believe or what the Bible teaches. So you must have discernment going into that and you need to ask good questions. If you're going to join a Bible translation team, find out what their philosophy of Bible translation is. Do not be surprised by that when you get to the field. Shame on you and shame on us who are teaching and training and leading the missions enterprises through our schools and churches. So this little model, I want you to think about. When you pursue missions work, just ask the simple question. Have I thought this through biblically? Okay, am I working with people who think biblically and agree biblically about this? What is our philosophy of ministry? It's important. Take the time to work through that. If you're gonna join somebody on a church planting team, you better do this first. And then your methodology will, will should flow out of that. Um, and in time, you'll be able to have a ministry of integrity, biblical integrity in, in what you do. And so I believe a biblical reformation movement in evangelical missions is underway. I'm encouraged. These are great days. Pastors and elders of local churches need to be informed first. They need to wake up. And pay attention to these issues, not just delegate the responsibility for equipping and training their missionaries to whatever school they went to or whatever mission organization. Okay, so that's my appeal to you. Then call your church's leadership to cultivate discernment and practice stewardship of both their people and their resources. If you go through an assessment of where your, your people are spending your mission's dollars, you might discover the majority of things that you are funding aren't consistent with actually what your church teaches or believes. Now, don't be unkind. Those people, like I said, have good intentions, they're faithful, and, and they're living a life of faith. Think about a loving way to influence them to think biblically. And if you can't do that, you might have to make some difficult decisions, okay? This will bring accountability back to the local church and accountability then to mission organizations and missionaries. And I'm thrilled by ministries like Radius. There's a movement out of Bob Jones. There's an effort by Nine Marks to issue a new series of books on missions. We're doing what we're doing. 
There is there are new mission uh, Bible translation organizations that are stepping up. Every generation has to address these trends in their own generation, and you're part of that. Being here today, this is a reformation movement in missions today, and I'm encouraged by your interest and your commitment. And so, my appeal to you is hold fast to the authority of God's word and have confidence that it will guide you in your missions practice, okay? And I know that was at a high level, a general level, and you probably have a ton of questions on the practical level. So ask Brooks those questions, and we'll have a good time. All right, thank you guys very much for being here.